Well, hello and welcome to episode number A3, um, uh, 340 of the Plain Talking UK podcast. I'm Carlos and uh, in this week's show, Airbus reveals their first A321 freighter conversion. Uh, British Airways has a change of boss. Singapore Airlines opens what could be the world's largest restaurant in an A380. In the military, the Philippines receives some new Tucanos, and the US Air Force has got some new top-secret tech in their fighter jets. We also have a very special piece written by Captain Nick all about the A340, and in this week's Aviation in My Life, this week is coming from Alan Loveday. So, joining me in the PTUK studios this week, he's been working like an absolute hound for the last hour or two. It's, of course, the legend that is Matt Smith. <laughs> hello, hello. Sorry, You're right there, Matt. <laughs> something loud and shouty occurring outside my house all of a sudden. I just take me a bit by surprise. Oh, have you upset someone? Well, I don't know. I don't really know what's going on. You know what you should do? You should unleash what's on that picture behind you. Uh, uh, what, what, that uh, yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, um, yes, in fact, Mr. Warden did tell me all about it. So, uh, so this was, hang on, what did he, hang on. He says this was the Swiss Air Force Super Puma at um, Axelp last year. Uh, where I should, where he should have been today, still, ironically. So uh, I think that's, I think we're all experiencing that a bit, aren't we? We're all a bit sulky about the things we wanted to be able to do that we can't do at the moment. I was going to say that that would make a hell of a firework display on November the fifth. Well, quite absolutely, yeah. certainly better than anything I've seen in this area. <laughs> so it be like the loadmaster had a little digestive accident. Right. <laughs> Anyway, everything fell out of the hold. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, this week uh, Armando is uh, going to be joining us later on the show, but uh, we have got obviously this week, as always, our resident guru of all things tech and cable management is of course Neville Bounds. Yes, my cable management is not up to par this <gasps> week. Uh, I've had it all apart here in the studio, not fully Again? reconfigured it, uh, <laughs> but. Um, didn't you yes. do that like a couple of weeks ago? What's the matter with you? That's right. You're your... I did, yeah. So somebody uh, had a carpet fitted and then that all had to come apart for that. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly. Nightmare. Absolute nightmare. Uh, anyway, yes, great to be back on the show. And uh, yeah, it's been a good week, actually. Uh, not much travelling this week, of course. Um, just some local bits and pieces. But uh, hopefully off to Gibraltar at the end of the month for a couple of days uh, to redo some hasty replanning of the Belfast trip. Because even if we do go, we can't eat anywhere. <laughs> so uh, we're going to try <laughs> Gibraltar and see how we get on there. Right. Okay. Yeah, because you had you had some good uh, results really from BA, didn't you, Nev? With the changes. Yes. Oh yeah, they, they've been extremely uh, uh, helpful. Uh, I've got to say that in case I get all my status removed, <laughs> uh, but that's coming up later in the show. <laughs> It certainly is. Yeah, don't say anything too nasty on, uh, no, no, no. on Twitter no, about being. Yeah. What about if I say something? No, you're fine, mate. That's oh, fine. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You'll, you'll just get banned from Ryanair. Anyway. Oh, um, <laughs> it's not all bad then. <laughs> as you may have heard and may have seen, uh, this is episode 340. So, we're, well, there's going to be one special guest that we could have on the show this week. And it is, of course... The, the person who really knows the A340 like the back of his hand is, of course, the absolute fantastic legend that is Captain Nick. So, Nick, welcome on to the show. Well, it's very kind of you guys to uh, invite me back on again, although um, I will admit that uh, since uh, my own uh, show, I, not mine, I 
the show I regularly appear on is having a, a short sabbatical, I felt at a bit of a loose end. So I did sort of throw um, a, in <laughs> a, a little hint, say, to Matt's way, saying, Oi! <laughs> Subtle as a sledgehammer, gentlemen. That's the best way it to was. describe it. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that, man. Not terrible. at all, not at all. And, and he, but, I mean, uh, you know, I'd like to say that, obviously, because everything we do here at PTUK is, of course, planned to the very nth degree. Um, you know, and I can't think of anyone better to have on the show on our 340th episode than a man who for probably more years than he cares to remember flew an A340. <laughs> well, that's true, as we'll find out. I more or less saw it into service and was on it till almost the dying day. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> my entire I'd, career was spent walking up and down I'd, the... I'll tell you what, dear listeners and, and uh, YouTube uh, viewers, uh, it's just as well you don't necessarily get the full picture shall we say from our guests calls uh, that come down the line here as I say because I've had my fingers burnt before and crop the image ever so slightly that comes into the PTUK <laughs> studio here and uh, uh, the other gentlemen have probably just realised why yeah <laughs> you know, I did say yes indeed <clears throat> do, do you think uh, do you think Matt now do you think we should uh, perhaps book um, Nick for 10 episodes time uh, yes, we could do, couldn't we? That's a good idea. Yeah, well, can, we, can, we, yeah. can we book you for the, for the 350th show? Uh, yes, of course. Uh, I, I would be delighted to, if, assuming I'm, I'm not doing something really important. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Obviously, we'll, I mean, skip, uh, we'll skip 360 and 370, and then we'll have you back on 380. Right, okay. <laughs> yeah. I don't think you ever flew a 380. <laughs> or a 350. Kind oh, of right, that. okay. Uh, right, I was going to say. I, uh, Mind I you, look- as I say, at the moment, as, as, the, as things run at the moment, Nick's sort of appearing every 10 shows, so that would be in line with his current <laughs> ap- you know, appearance rate, so that, so that works well. Yeah. <laughs> to be fair, as, on the day I retired, uh, I went into the office and uh, had a last look round and uh, handed in my ID and all the usual stuff, my uniform, all that. And um, the lovely manager who has been my manager for many years there said, oh, we've got the uh, 350 um, uh, cabin mock-up. Oh. Uh, would you like to go and take a look? And uh, I said, oh, am I allowed? She says, no, not really, but we'll sneak <laughs> you in there. <laughs> and I looked around and uh, was very impressed. And then, of course, I bumped into one of the, the 350 training captains who had just completed uh, a conversion. And he said, oh, we've got the 350 uh, mock-up cockpit upstairs. Would you like to have a play with that? So I, I, I saw a few bits and bobs and was actually severely jealous. Um, I can no doubt about it. They, the Airbus had done an awful lot. Uh, in 25 years. Wow. Uh, now, actually, I'm looking at the notes here, and there's a little thing just under what we've been talking about here that says, how's the new camera? Uh, yeah, it's still sitting somewhere in Tokyo, I oh, suspect. Canon oh. <laughs> um, have yet to release uh, any model, any of the actual cameras that I have discovered to the UK yet. Uh, it's not that they don't want to, and everyone's got pre-orders in, including me. But I, um, you know, I've had no word from any of the uh, shops that I've got pre-orders. So, so in other words, I'm very sorry I brought it up, Nick. I do apologise. Yeah, no, it's fine. Uh, <laughs> I was told it was a, a birthday stroke Christmas present. It's definitely going to be more like a Christmas, more Christmas present. Absolutely. Oh dear. Right, we better get uh, get things underway, hadn't we? 
Yep, so thanks to everyone who's joined us for the live show this evening in the YouTube chat room. All the usual family members, and I think there's a few extra ones in there this week as well. Hello to you, uh, Lane Street, Graham Haley, Jack English. Hello to you, Jack. Hello, Myla, and scrolling down. Hello to our main man, Micah. Um, let's have a look who else we've got here. Oh, Captain Nick's obviously in the chat room. That's always good. Uh, we've got uh, Jan Hubner. Uh, Andy Williamson, hello to you, Andy. Captain Cruz is in the chat room as well. Hello to you, Alan White. Hello to you, Alan. Uh, Jonathan Warner, he must be taking time out of his uh, busy uh, shift to join us, or he's not working, one of the two, I don't know. <laughs> and Nick Codling, hello to you, Nick Codling as well. And Masha, hello to you, Masha, and welcome there. And don't forget, if you listen to the show as an audio version and you fancy joining all this fun on the live show on YouTube. Just look us up on YouTube and click that subscribe button and also click that bell button next to the subscribe button to receive a notification on your device when we go live. And then you can join us in the chat room, which is awesome. So we are going to start the show then as we do each week with our rundown of the weekly news from around the world and the UK. So if all the crew is ready, mm, we are. let's go. I wasn't ready. Sorry about that. <laughs> so, kicking off this week's first news story, and uh, this one, obviously, we had to have. Uh, an Airbus story first, and this one is on Flight Global's website. And the headline on here is the new Airbus A321 conversion uh, freighter is uh, finally live. So Oregon Company uh, 321 Precision Conversions completed their first flight of its Airbus A321-200 PCF, or freighter conversion, on the 10th of October. The type is a former passenger A321 conversion to a freighter capable of carrying 27 tonnes of payload. The uh, maintenance test flight proceeds the start of the A321-200 regulatory certification flights, a process that Precision Conversions expects to complete with brisk progression. Uh, Precision Conversions is working towards receiving a supplemental type certificate for the type from the Federal Aviation Administration and certifications from the European and Chinese regulators. This milestone flight was uh, nominal in all respects with all primary and secondary systems including the cargo door and support subsystems functioning perfectly as designed, says Precision Conversions President Gary Warner. Precision Conversions is a joint venture between aircraft modification specialist Precision Aircraft Solutions, also based in Oregon, and a freight com uh, company Air Transport Services Group based in Ohio. The A321 conversion includes addition of a hydraulically operated main deck cargo door and a main deck cargo loading system. The type uh, has also had reinforced floor and plugged windows. Uh, the conversion allows the 321 to carry up to 14 containers measuring 2.2 uh, by 3.2 meters uh, on its main deck and 10 smaller containers on its lower deck. 
Precision Conversions has said the jet's capacity will be similar to that of a Boeing 757-200 freighter, which is the best freighter in the world. Uh, <clears throat> doesn't say that, but that's what I think. Uh, several other companies are also developing converted A321 freighters. Those include Elbe Flutswerk, a joint venture between Airbus and the ST Engineering that developed the A321 P2F, the European granted that, a jet supplemental type certificate in February. San Diego-based Pac Avi International launched a converted A321F in 2014. So uh, Matt's obviously uh, flashed the pictures up, I should say, on the screen there while uh, while we're doing that. And uh, it it does look quite uh, spacious inside, I will say. Obviously, it looks kind of strange seeing um, an A321 with quite a large, sizable cargo door uh, just forward of uh, the engines, I suppose. But um, what do you think, Nick? The thing of the future here? That's the door, isn't it? Mm. Uh, yeah, I think Airbus have made a sensible move trying to tackle uh, you know, Boeing, who, quite honestly, have uh, fairly well cornered the uh, freighter uh, market. Um, but, uh, you know, the 7.5s and the 7.6s and the, the even older airplanes out there of an equivalent size um, are getting a bit long of the tooth, many. So I think it's probably quite an astute move. It does look roomier than I expected. Uh, and, um, of course, they've got the 330, if you uh, that has been a freighter for a while now, if you want a uh, bigger version. So, yeah, could well be a market out there, and I expect they'll sell a few. Yeah, Nev, uh, I think this is this is sort of like um, def- definitely a direct competitor for the uh, 7.5 freighter. Yeah, it's good to see Airbus uh, competing in the, in the freighter market because there's been an awful lot of freighter activity in the last, uh, mm. what, seven, eight months. And uh, from what we hear, there's going to be a lot more as well. So I think that the fact that they're uh, going head-to-head with Boeing in this market is a good thing. Definitely. Mm, definitely. So, Matt, you've got the uh, next story, and uh, obviously it's going to be a Ryanair story. But uh, sad news for this one. Indeed, yes, absolutely. I, I suppose, uh, I mean, I guess we're not really surprised with half the things we're hearing at the moment, are we really? But, uh, uh, yes, it's uh, from rte.ie, the website, and the headline is Ryanair to close Cork and Shannon bases for the winter. So Ryanair has said it is to close its bases in Cork and Shannon in the south and west of Ireland for the winter. The move comes as the airline cuts capacity over the winter season from 60% to just 40 compared to last year. Uh, it's based in Toulouse in France uh, is also to close and there will be significant base aircraft cuts in Belgium, Germany, Spain, Portugal and Vienna it said in a statement while we deeply regret these winter schedule cuts that have been forced upon us by government mismanagement of EU travel oh he had to get that in there didn't he Uh, (laughs) said uh, uh, Ryanair CEO um, Michael O'Leary, it is inevitable given the scale of these cutbacks that we will be implementing more unpaid leave and job sharing this winter in those bases where we have agreed reduced working time and pay. But this is a better short-term outcome than mass job losses, he added. Ryanair employs 80 pilots and cabin crew at its base in Cork and 55 in Shannon. Ryanair had 
been operating on 16 and 13 routes in and out of Shannon and Cork respectively. Uh, that is now falling to three each for the winter, all of which will be operated by aircraft and crews based outside of Ireland. Um, the airline said it is also reducing its full year traffic guidance to 38 million this year compared to 149 million last year and it warned uh, this could fall further if travel restrictions stay in place. The Minister for Foreign Affairs, Simon Coveney, uh, told uh, Ireland's RTE Radio 1 that the government cannot and will not open international travel in a global pandemic, but will move uh, next week to implement a new EU-wide travel traffic light system, which the Irish government has endorsed but has not yet to adopt. The minister said that uh, Ryanair's decision is really bad news for Cork and Shannon airports, and that he hoped Ryanair will reopen its bases at Shannon and Cork after the winter months. Uh, also worth mentioning uh, that Ryanair has started competing uh, with PTUK's story number two, it says here. So the, uh, the low-cost airline Ryanair has launched its first business and aviation podcast named Inside Ryanair. I don't know if I like this. Named Inside Ryanair, the podcast was unveiled this week with the aim of discussing current affairs, giving insight to the inner workings of Ryanair and providing an overview of frequently asked questions. Hosted by Piras Kelly and Mark Duffy, um, each episode of Inside Ryanair will last 40 minutes at 40 minutes pff, amateurs and we'll begin with a discussion of hot topics from the last uh, few days before welcoming a different guest from across the industry each week for this first uh, show the hosts engage in an in-depth discussion with Eddie Wilson, the CEO of Ryanair. Uh, so, uh, and the leader talks about the different experiences at Ryanair for over twenty years, with some stories and observations from Ryanair's offices. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's, the question is, will it have the uh, will it have the production values? Obviously, that uh, listeners of no. Peter UK and APG are so very used to. I mean, that well, is just the ultimate question. It, it, it will be on time either. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> See what you did there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, by the way, I never knew there was a Minister for Foreign Affairs. Uh, well, quite. <laughs> I was supposed to, it was my wife who kept an eye on that sort of thing. Right, yes. Uh, yes, I, I think probably you're quite right there, yes. <laughs> Oh no! Okay, so uh, we were hope. I'm not quite sure who we got. To, who's going to do um, story three for us? Then, uh, did you want to take that one, Carlos? Yeah, I can do. Yeah, this uh, this next story is coming from the planeandpilotmag.com, and uh, the headline: FAA releases final rule on Cessna strut attached. AD. So a new airworthiness directive will affect many thousands of aircraft and if cracks are detected the repairs will be expensive. If you own a Cessna single engine airplane from the good old days uh, chances are you've held your breath as you've waited upon the FAA to release its final rule on airworthiness directive uh, regarding the windstruck attach point. Uh, well, points. There's another. Uh, there's one on each side of the aircraft. The FAA became aware a couple of years ago of cracks in the lower area of the forward cabin door post bulkhead on more than uh, four dozen Textron 100 and 200 aircraft. Those models, uh, the Cessna Model 100 series, 172, 182, and 200 series, 206, 207, and 210 airplanes, of which there are tens of thousands in the worldwide fleet. Textron Aviation is the owner of Cessna, 
of course, and of those models, around 60 model years are represented. So if you're wondering if your vintage 172, 182, 206, 207, or 210 is affected, prepare yourself to learn that is how bad it could be if your plane needs to be inspected. The inspection itself is the least of it. Uh, it will probably cost a few hundred dollars, according to the FAA's estimates on the costs involved. And for cream puffs, that is planes with less than 4,000 hours time in them. Inspections only need to perform, be performed when the plane gets to 4,000 hours or when you put another 200 hours on it, uh, whichever happens first. Aircraft with 4,000 or more hours on them will need to be inspected within the next 200 or hours or 12 months. Uh, for planes that already have a service kit installed or on which there are new cracks found during the inspections, there are different and additional requirements. And it goes without saying that if you need to refer to the AD itself, which can be found on the Federal Register. If your plane needs a service kit installed, the cost of the AD could be, depending on what model of the plane you have, a lot of money, including the service kit from Textron, which isn't cheap, and all the required labour to install it. These planes found with cracks will be looking at many thousands of dollars of expenses, not to mention the downtime, which could be substantial considering the sheer number of aircraft and more than 10,000 that are covered by this AD. Is there a bright side? Not much of one. By the time you've completed the work, you'll have an airplane that's worth more than it was before, though a small cons consolation, at least uh, this case, with the value of used Cessnas rising. So it's uh, precipitately see a little of late. The plane you're putting the money into is worth a lot more than what you paid for it, which is always a good thing. You don't get that with a car. And there's a uh, fact that this repair might just keep the wings from falling off your aircraft in flight, which in the FAA's defence is their biggest concern. Thank you for changing the part of the show notes there, Mr. Bounds. I'm guessing that was you. <laughs> I don't know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, actually, you know, in all seriousness, I remember one of the uh, big things that was always pointed out to me whenever we were doing the pre-flight checks on the 150, uh, 152s and 172s at the flight school where I learned was to always check around the wing struts and the wheels and all around that area because these aircraft, especially the one that I learned to fly, was, was a 1969 vintage. Did you uh, give them a good shake? Just make sure they were firmly <laughs> gave, gave them gave them a good 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 old fashioned kick and a well, that's probably why they're suffering from fatigue cracks. Then <laughs> I'll tell you if you if you seen some of the landings that I saw whilst I was sitting in the in the control room for some of the student pilots, you yeah, you definitely see why these aircraft do get a hell of a hammering, especially the flight school ones. <laughs> yeah, never buy a second hand one from a flight school. No, God blimey, no. He's <laughs> had a few hard landings, certainly. <laughs> but uh, moving on to the next story, and Nev, uh, BA, they're, they're, they've got rid of someone. They have, <laughs> and um, this is of no great surprise, I have to say to me, but uh, British Airways has announced it's replacing its chief executive, Alex Cruz, as the airline hey! navigates the worst <laughs> crisis facing its industry. Uh, Mr. Cruz, who's been with BA since 2016, will be immediately replaced by Air Lingus boss Sean Doyle. Uh, Mr. Cruz will stay on as non-executive chairman for a transition period before Mr. Doyle also takes on that role. The shake-up is one of the first major moves by Luis Gallego, who uh, took over as IAG's chief executive last month 
replacing long-standing boss Willie Walsh. Alex Cruz's most recent task at BA was to push through thousands of job cuts as well as changes to pay and conditions, which will see many remaining staff earning a lot less in future. Those cuts may have been necessary due to the COVID crisis, but the way BA went about it provoked deep resentment and bitterness amongst the workforce. And he was hardly popular to begin with. He arrived at BA with a brief to cut costs and boost profitability to enable the airline to compete with budget carriers. He did succeed, but at a price. Uh, Customer satisfaction fell sharply, leading to accusations that the BA brand was being sacrificed for short-term shareholder value. Uh, There were strikes over what was described as poverty pay by the cabin crew and repeated IT failures proved deeply embarrassing for the company. And we learned today, in fact, that they've uh, had a fine of uh, £20 million uh, for some of those IT failures. I thought it was a lot more than that. Uh, Well, they were going to be fined £183 million originally. Uh, but um, uh, someone's come to an arrangement, clearly. Uh, they managed to pay within two weeks, is that That's it? Right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, <my> <laughs> so, but now that former IAG chief exec Willie Walsh has retired, the new IAG boss, Luis Gallego, uh, uh, appears to have made his mark and rebuilt bridges with staff. Mr Doyle is returning to BA after just, the, after just two years in charge at Aer Lingus, which is also owned by IAG. Prior to that, he had worked at BA since 1998. Aer Lingus' uh, Donald Moriarty, currently the airline's chief corporate affairs officer, will become interim chief executive. A permanent appointment will be announced in due course. Elsewhere within IAG, Fernando Candela, level chief executive, is joining the group's management committee in the new role of chief transformation officer. Well, he'll have his work cut out, won't he? Um, I think that this is going to be a very interesting three or four months uh, because they need to do something. The I think the brand had been uh, messed around with too much, in, in my amateur opinion. And uh, let's see if they can bring it back to where it was, even through these horrific times that we're living in at the moment. Mm. You know, the uh, the average career span of, a, say, a pilot in uh, a Big Bird Airways uh, is probably 30 years, I would guess. Um, the average um, span of employment for their chief executive is about five years, yes. uh, certainly in modern times. So, you know, you're gonna, these guys are going to see an awful lot of uh, chief executives go through, and it's very hard to... Uh, believe all the stories that they will tell you when they come in because you know very well that they're almost reading from a hymn sheet and that they are just implementing the a message from above and um, you know this guy wants to rebuild bridges great but uh, I think the pilots in BA are going to look at that with a very jaundiced eye. Do, yeah. do you think Nev with, with the introduction of this new um, first suite with BA that's going to help things with this, this kind of level of service well i don't know because the thing is that people that would fly in that class of cabin would almost certainly be business people and there is no long-haul business flying going to be happening in in substantial amounts for at least the next six months because ba rely heavily on the business and first sector in order to make it all work um 
people flying in the economy doesn't pay the bills at all. And don't forget the uh, cabin crew and the flight crew have had their terms and conditions and pensions mucked around with on numerous occasions go, going back many, many years. And, and, you know, the crew have taken quite a big hit previously uh, to help the airline, which appears to have gone unnoticed in, in some quarters. So I, I'm very concerned because apart from the aviation uh, industry being in a very difficult place at the moment, I think BAE have really just got to change the, how they operate. And obviously they've, they've shed large long-haul aircraft like the 747 and they've parked a load of A380s uh, to save some cost uh, in favour of the A350s and Dreamliners. But um, we'll have to see. Um, there's a lot of uh, pilots that took early retirement as well, people that were coming up to retirement age that were flying the 74 in particular. So, um, yeah, we'll have mm. to see what happens. So, Nick, you've got uh, the next story, which is quite an important story. Uh, absolutely, yes. It's, uh, it, you know, it's quite serious. So, um, it's, uh, the headline is uh, Malaysia Airlines takes measures to protect mental health of aviation workers. And it comes to us from uh, the star.com, uh, biospectrum, mazia.com, and humanresourcesonline.net, uh, part of the Malaysia Airline uh, group. Um, so with demand for travel at an all-time low, many airlines uh, have been forced to take hard measures to ensure the sustainability of their business, which includes things like retrenchment exercises, unpaid leave, we just heard about that from BA, uh, as well as extensive pay cuts. And almost every airline has, uh, you know, cut conditions uh, of service and pay uh, in absolute swathes. Um, these measures have no doubt caused stress and anxiety amongst aviation workers. Um, they they centre in on pilots and flight attendants. We'll probably discuss why in a minute. Um, and this brings up the discussion of the mental well-being of airline staff. Joint statement by the European Pilot Peer Support Initiative, the EPPSI, and their founding um, organization said that COVID-19, the crisis, exposes all flight crew, um, their relatives and passengers, to particularly high psychological stresses. Uh, in light of the pandemic, some carriers have taken measures to protect the well-being of their staff. The Malaysian uh, Aviation Group, MAG, recently announced an initiative to provide their employees with psychological health support amid the pandemic. Uh, we understand the importance of mental well-being and believe that early screening is important so intervention can be timely, said MAG Chief Executive Officer, Captain uh, Ism Ishmael. Uh, the Employee Assistance Programme, EAP, uh, was launched in particular with Malaysian Digital Therapeutics Company, uh, uh, Naluri to provide employees in Malaysia and at international stations with continuous communications and engagement to help them cope with the challenges of being in lockdown and working from home. Um, that doesn't so much apply to pilots, but there you go. This includes uh, access to financial counselling, very important financial literacy courses, besides constant tips to adapt to the new norm providing our employees with much supported need, uh, sorry, much needed support to ensure their well-being. 
So uh, the MAG consists of national carrier, I mean, Malaysia Airlines, Firefly, MAG Swings, uh, MAB Cargo, MAB Academy, and Aero Direct, among others. Hadn't heard of most of those, except perhaps Malaysian. Uh, now, Lurie CEO um, Azran Osman Arani said this partnership can help break down the stigma on mental health that is still prevalent in this country. Well, prevalent in a lot of countries, to be fair. We're proud of them for setting this example for employers in the tourism, aviation, and hospitality industry, sectors that have been worst affected by this pandemic. Mental health is key to a company uh, and a country's overall growth, uh, as Ren added. Apart from offering mental health support, some carriers are also trying to create alternative livelihoods by offering positions in other subsidiaries within the company to grounded pilots and flight attendants. A serious subject. Nice to see uh, an airline um, contributing towards an organization that is going to provide support. Uh, and quite honestly, I think um, every airline has a responsibility to its employees. And it's not that I'm trying to belittle anyone within the industry, but um, the mental health of the flight crew in particular, cabin crew as well, of course, um, is vital to air safety, particularly as the flights are now beginning to you know, occur in more regular circumstances and the airways are starting to fill up a bit, albeit they're still well below. doesn't mean to say that other people in the industry uh, don't suffer from stress. They do. But when a pilot uh, gets distracted by uh, his concerns on the ground, uh, accidents can happen. And we know that has a huge impact uh, on an airline and the industry in whole, uh, in whole, at a whole. What am I trying to say? Industry at large. Yeah, Matt, if you remember, we'd, um, we don't, you, or actually you and Minnie done that very important thing a few months back, didn't you, in, mm, in yeah, regards to all yeah. this. And it is a, a very important thing um, for, for many different uh, jobs, not you know, all within the aviation industry, and also like what Matt does, coach driving or any sort of aspect of a, of a job where there's, you've got that degree of um, you know, concentration that you should have. You know, you're a pilot, you've got passengers behind you, you're a coach driver, you've got um, passengers behind you and you need to, to um, yeah, need to fight through it. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's good that they're doing this. I think uh, more, more people, more airlines, I think, or more groups should follow suit and, um, you know, promote uh, more well-being within the... Uh... Absolutely. And having been someone who's suffered from clinical depression in the past and uh, having brought myself back to full health, and that wasn't even close to the pandemic. I mean, that was just in the normal everyday run of doing my uh, job. Um, I understand entirely how important it is to get a grip, uh, to recognize you've got a problem and to uh, seek treatment um, because it's going to be much more prevalent now that we've got the additional pressures uh, of, uh, you know, am I going to lose my job next week? Um, am I going to need to sell my house? Uh, just a little example. Um, BA Pilot and his wife lived uh, very, not far away. Um, they have had to sell their house because they had a mortgage because just over the concerns that they may not 
have jobs uh, in the near future and downsized already just so they could get rid of the mortgage uh, because they were terribly concerned about their future incomes and whether that would mean they didn't have a home at all. Uh, and we all know that there are a few things in life which cause huge stress and one of which is moving house but by buying a new house um, and you add to them the possibility of losing your job and people are going to be under a huge amount of pressure and it's really not healthy. Matt, uh, any thoughts before we move on? Um, I, I, it's, I mean, with anything like this, it's always good news that it's... I, I, the thing for me is, is at least it's a topic of conversation and that's, um, you know, that, that I think is very important. Um, that uh, that it is at least a conversation that's being had. So, um, I'll yeah. tell you what is important, Matt, is mm. the fact, is one of the most important things, I think, especially for, for all us here and all the listeners, is that the great community that we do have within the aviation community and the mm. podcast community, we've got, yeah. we've got such a fantastic wealth of people within our community who are always at the end of a, 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 tw a text message, a Twitter, you know, any uh, an online thing to talk to all the time because, you know, we, we all know ourselves here, guys, that there's been a few members of the community that have had a pretty rough last few weeks and we've always, you know, we've, we've been here uh, to support them and mm. uh, that's, that's important, very important. Agreed. So moving on to the next story on the list and uh, this one that comes to us from uh, simpleflying.com and uh, the headline on here zip air and uh, <laughs> colin's partner to let you order refreshments from your phone oh. i hope it's not an iphone anyway <laughs> zip air is scheduled to fly its first i had to get that one in so scheduled to fly its first passengers uh, this week. Uh, the Japanese low-cost carrier will be providing Wi-Fi free of charge. Blimey, Matt, that's not bad. And has teamed up with Collins Aerospace to allow passengers to order items in flight from their own smart devices. Uh, Simple Flying caught up with Nicole Granger from uh, Collins Aerospace to find out more about how the system works and benefits the passengers. So Zip Air, the Japanese low-cost carrier, is uh, gearing up for its first flights, having flown uh, for some months now with only cargo on board. So this week, uh, so this week they flew uh, to the skies with their first passengers. So the maiden flight operated from Tokyo's Narita Airport uh, to Seoul in Xi'an and uh, took off around about 9.15 local time in the morning. Passengers on board uh, were, were delighted with uh, the low-cost carrier's decision to provide Panasonic's Wi-Fi free of charge. Not only that, but they also uh, were able to order their buy-on-board items via their personal smart devices. Hang on a minute. How do you get your food delivered? <laughs> they, they beam it in, Nick. It's, it's like Star Trek. Beam <laughs> Right. I suppose well, I ate away refueling, I suppose. Something, something <laughs> like a Big Macs down a tube. Right, okay, sort of like, you yeah, compressed. <laughs> <laughs> so Zip Air, oh, I just love that name, Zip Air's President Shingo Nishida 
commented on the technology, saying that Zip Air's priority and vision is to enhance the in-flight experience and empower passengers with on-demand services. Uh, Zip Air believes that the introduction of the system will provide passengers with the peace of mind to fly and enhance the confidence and comfort of passengers by minimising physical contact and touch points in the cabin. The system has been designed in partnership with Collins Aerospace and makes uh, Zip Air the first low-cost carrier to introduce a self-ordering system such as this. So uh, the system itself uh, has uh, all the aspects of connectivity uh, in cabin operation portfolios. So has been very on. Uh, they've had been very hands-on in the development uh, of the technology with Zipair. The system, which she calls the electronic cabin bag or ECB, works uh, through the onboard wireless network. Passengers on their smart devices will be presented with a portal in the same way they would be able to access con in-flight content. Uh, from there, they'll have visibility of the entire onboard catalogue, including food, beverage services, as well as duty-free. The ordering process is simple. Passengers simply select what they want from the catalogue, pay for it via the online portal, and crew are, who uh, on SIPAIR are equipped with personal devices themselves will receive the order, prepare it for the customer, and then deliver it. The items are then delivered to the seat, massively reducing the physical contact necessary for buy on board. Uh, reduced interaction between crew and passengers is a high priority for many airlines right now in a bid to keep both employees and customers safe. However, losing out on that revenue, particularly for low-cost carriers, is a painful proposition. So this solution from Collins is a clear win for both passengers and the airline. What do you think, Matt, uh, with all this, obviously, the online connectivity thing and the speeds and the kind of the app itself obviously working on all networks? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, this is the thing. I mean, presumably, obviously, it's got to be stuff that's in, um, you know, it, it's all on board, is it, the the ordering process and everything? So you're mm, relying yeah. an awful lot on, what, if you don't have a tablet with you, does that mean you can't order anything? Yep. Right. Very <laughs> true, okay. very true. Um, and uh, let's be honest, uh, connectivity in the air has always been subpar at best. The opportunities for failure here are quite frightening. What happens if you are... Uh, unable to connect and would like to order something. I mean, I, I guess I suppose it's low cost area, low cost airline. So you're probably what looking at five, six hours max, perhaps on a flight. So I mean, I, I guess most people can cope that long. Here's without... the question I have: Why do they need to connect to the World Wide Web, the you know the interweb? True. Why can't they just have a local network they connect to that goes straight to the galley? So. You know, what's the point of having it connecting to the internet? You could just have a local network and just order directly uh, to the girls, um, uh, you know, iPads or whatever. Mm. Question. It, I it, require it, an answer. I was going to say, what, what, there was an airline, <laughs> wasn't there? There was, was it BA Nev that, that had the, or there was an airline that handed out iPads to the passengers for the. Uh, well, on the yes, on the A three one eight. That's it. Yeah, from mm. uh, Heathrow via City Airport. Sorry, mm. via um, Shannon to JFK. Yes, they they did do that. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I suppose it's all right if you've got an iPad because I mean, for some people, ordering something online using a mobile phone screen, which is not you know huge, can be quite sort of got hard for some people to not only see but to obviously work with. Whereas with an iPad, you've got quite a large surface to use, but. I don't know. I suppose it'll work. It'll work. Yeah. 
Well, it's not like you're going to have an awful lot to order, are you? You're going to order a, a baguette or a quick meal or, um, you know, some bottle of wine or something. I, I don't think I mean, who orders duty free now anyway? Uh, well, as of January the 1st, uh, quite a lot of people, I would imagine. <laughs> <laughs> there is that. Uh, <laughs> hmm. I don't yeah. know, I can't remember the last time I went on board an aircraft and ordered anything from Duty Free. I used to, you see, I mean, I remember, like, when obviously when I was much younger, I used to enjoy, like, wandering around the Duty Free shops and stuff in the airport. But to be honest with you, because they sort of force that upon you now, because you can't not just walk into the departure lounge now. You have to, like, weave your way through this network of shops, I suppose, to try and encourage <laughs> you to, you know, impulse buy. And actually, it's put me off the whole duty-free experience now. I, Ironically, I'm less likely to spend money on duty-free stuff now than I was before when I could go into a shop by choice rather than it being rammed down my throat. I, I can actually imagine both you and Nev probably heading... Actually, Nick as well, probably heading to the uh, the, the tech gadget shop... Um, duty free shop in the airport. What, so you can buy something that's twice as expensive as. <laughs> <laughs> well, quite, yes. And I think also, to be fair, I think it's the likes of Amazon and eBay and all that kind of thing are kind of ruined duty free shopping, haven't they, really? Because you, mm. don't, you don't get anywhere near the kind of discounts you used to, used to get. What, what was your last duty free uh, purchase, Nev? Oh, uh, <laughs> on board the uh, return flight from Jib uh, two years ago. I would say, uh, a very nice bottle of gin. Yeah, okay. Which uh, we polished off in less than a week, I think. <laughs> Lovely. And on that bombshell... And uh, on that Nev, bombshell, yeah. there you go. <laughs> Nev, uh, Nev, th now this story, Nev, this is awesome, and I'm, I'm now going to log into your Twitter account and send BA a message, so carry on. This is trouble with a capital T, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, it's on the onemileatatime.com website, and I'm holding my BA gold card as I'm speaking to you. <laughs> right. Uh, because okay. it says that British Airways has updated its executive club terms again. The last revision was just a few months ago, but now British Airways have updated terms to threaten executive club members who speak unfavourably about the airline. Misconduct in the exec executive club programme was expanded to include two extra points. One of these points relates to any misconduct either behaviourally or in language towards BA staff or the staff of their service partners. The second relates to any conduct which causes, uh, is intended to cause or is likely to cause a detrimental effect or reflects unfavourably on the reputation of British Airways or any aspect of its business, brands, products or services. In other words, in theory, you could be kicked out of the exec club for any conduct that reflects unfavourably on the reputation of British Airways. So does tweeting something unfavourable or writing a negative review of the airline qualify? Uh, it's funny to see this update yes, yes, around the, the same answer. time yeah. <laughs> as the story about the guy who was jailed in Thailand uh, over a negative hotel review. Um, <gasps> this is worth being aware of, but first of all, keep in mind that the airlines do reserve the right to terminate frequent flyer accounts for any reason and at their discretion. And that includes taking away your miles. Uh, that's not an option they exercise very often, but it's something that they claim they can do. Uh, with people being increasingly uncivil towards airline employees, uh, one mile at a time thinks that there's nothing wrong with threatening customers who are abusive towards staff. 
there was a, a horrific example of the infamous note by a recent American Airlines passenger where they called the flight attendant a glorified waitress and waste. On the Ooh. surface, uh, they think that this is, does take a step too far, although I doubt we'll actually see this clause enforced very much. For that matter, British Airways already has the right to terminate executive club accounts for whatever reason, uh, even before this change. Um, I have to say, um, from the three or four BA flights that I've taken, since the pandemic started in March, uh, the uh, cabin crew and the flight crew have been absolutely superb and all the ground crew as well. But I do see far too regularly people, uh, passengers kicking off at the slightest things um, and everybody's in the same boat, unfortunately. They're, they're doing their very best to assist people. And I'm sure every other airline is doing the same as well. But some of the behaviour I have seen from some passengers, particularly those that might have, um, you know, miles status, for example, uh, leaves a lot to be desired. So I think we've just got to uh, calm down a bit and um, just remember that we're all trying to get through the whole thing together. But it, I think it's mm. pretty reasonable, actually, that BA have uh, already reinforced this this point, I would say. Well, of course, also, in, in fairness to BA, I mean, uh, you know, the media are trying to grab hold of a... a it's one of these non-events, isn't it, really? It's a non-story, because... You know, these terms and conditions have actually been there. You know, I mean, I, I, I recall uh, reading stories, you know, like four or five years ago where somebody's had their membership terminated because of, of their, you know, behaviour towards either staff or the, or the crew. I mean, this is not a new thing. I don't know whether it's just because more people are annoyed at the moment and therefore they're just sort of wanting to remind people of the rules or what, I don't know. But it's... Uh, you know, the, the 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 media is sort of making out this is a brand new thing, but the, I mean, this has been in, in place for for many many years, hasn't it? Yeah, they've they've already had that, as you say, the, the T's and C's have already been in there to uh, to allow for that. But mm. uh, maybe uh, it, they, it's just well, it's it's not a bad thing to reinforce it. Um, and I think that uh, particularly in the, these really difficult times at the moment with, with flying and all the rest of it, you know. Um, they're very short of crew uh, on the ground. Uh, there's all sorts of uh, people not used to being on the routes that they're currently operating on, all, all kinds of things. And so people have to make some allowance for that. Um, but then to, okay, there, there's two things there. One, actually sort of, you know, making a point about it on the aircraft or on the ground, but then going back into their Twitter account and then starting uh, to hurl abuse at them. That's, mm. uh, that's probably a Out of order, full stop, really, isn't it? But then, I mean, you could say that about any of these, what, what they call them, trolls, don't they? I mean, it's yeah. just like, you know, people are very brave when it's faceless and you're not directly in, in contact with someone. I, I mean, I've, I've yeah. had my fair share of uh, uh, sort of experiences of a negative nature <laughs> on, on that kind. And it's just like, as you say, people are so very brave when they can't see you, aren't they? Hmm. <laughs> very much so. Very true. Ever had to throw anyone off your aircraft before, Nick, for being... Annoying. Yes, of course. Uh, Good. All the time. Um, <laughs> um, particularly if they uh, showed any preference to a particular podcast. Um, right. So, <laughs> okay. Uh, no, I mean, uh, what usually happened was the cabin crew would come up and say, we've got a problem with passenger who seems to have drunk too much, he's being abusive, um, etc. And uh, I would say to the senior cabin crew, you've got my um, uh, absolute support if you uh, 
would like him to be taken off the aircraft, then let's do it now so that we've got time to get his bags off, etc. I say he could have been a she. Yeah. Um, and we would, I would act, you know, action that uh, promptly so that it didn't disturb the other passengers or delay the flight. Um, I, so I relied on the experience and, um, uh, of the cabin crew a great deal uh, because uh, usually I didn't have time to go back and uh, see them than myself. Um, but uh, there's always a bit of difficulty. Ground crew want to get the passengers on and out in our way. Mm-hmm. The cabin crew want to make sure that you've got a passenger. If he's going to be a problem, we want him off before we get airborne. We don't want it to escalate once we're in the sky. Things often get worse uh, once you're airborne. Uh, so, um, yeah. Actually, I, I don't know if uh, anybody agrees with me on this one, but I, don't, I, don't, don't, I sometimes don't feel like we give cabin crew enough credit for for what they have to do because uh, they get a terrible rep don't they a lot of the time mm. where you know they're a certain type of person or, or what that kind of thing but i mean one of the things i have really learned either by talking to cabin crew or or by talking to the pilots and captains of cabin crew is how unbelievably important the cabin crew actually are in this whole scenario i mean it's just like you know they're they're very much the sort of almost unsung heroes of the aviation world aren't they Well, absolutely. Uh, The relationship between the captain and the senior cabin crew is at times more important than the relationship between the captain and his first officer Mm. Uh, because, you know, the 300 people down the back, really, that entire area, although the captain makes the ultimate decision considering then going on back there, but it's all handled by the cabin crew. Yeah. uh, you know, you you're almost just rela- like carrying out their orders, almost in, in a way. You know, it's you have a discussion listening to them and taking their advice, and uh, you know, offering what you can. But in particular, after nine eleven, when the cockpit door became a real barrier uh, between communication, uh, and became much harder for us to go back and forth. Um, you know, it, a lot of this is done over the interf- over the telephone. Yeah. You know? And it makes it really hard. So you do have to put a lot of trust in the cabin crew. And the other thing is as well, Nick, I would imagine that um, <clears throat> if some, let's say you were on, on the ground and there was uh, unruly passenger and all the rest of it, the moment you got out of your seat, if you ever did, uh, and went back to deal with the passenger, you know, personally, as it were, that actually comp- must compromise your safety position as well because then you've then got to go back into the your seat and just pick up where you left off and then you've you've departed um a bit cross as well and you know so i think actually delegating that whole thing to the senior cabin crew member who is frankly speaking probably far more experienced in dealing with that sort of thing than than you might be oh absolutely yes and uh the vast majority are excellent at their job uh, so you get a, you know, you, you just hardly know anything's uh, happened. That you, they just come back later on the flight and say, "Yeah, we dealt with that. Thanks, thanks for your support," um, which is all they usually need. They just need to know that uh, you're there behind them if they have a problem, and uh, that you'll carry, you know, you'll shoulder the the responsibility of getting the passenger off because ultimately it's the captain's decision. I would say, take that all day, every day. I'd say, yep, no problem. I'd just say it was my decision and, you know, you you decide what you want to do and do it. Uh, That's the way you run an airline efficiently. And and I'll tell you what, the passengers who are being well-behaved and looking forward to a wonderful flight 
so much appreciate cabin crew who deal with these situations quickly and efficiently. Mm. It makes such a difference to their, their flight as well. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. So we're going to move on to the next story. And uh, Nick, some good news for Delta. Yeah, that's right. This is uh, from airjournal.fr. Is that France? Is this a French story? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, it, uh, it says um, the 1500th A330 delivered to Elta, Delta, sorry, Airlines. That's 1,500 A330s just to Delta. That's fantastic, isn't it? Um, so an Airbus uh, A330-900, that's a fairly new version, handed over to Delta Airlines last month. It's the 1500th long-haul jet built by Airbus since the launch of the program. Ah, okay, so it's not... Not the 1500th to oh, Delta. The 1500th it's, to yeah. Delta, yeah, I thought that was a bit, a bit, yeah, a bit high. Yeah. <laughs> the 1500th built and Delta happened to be receiving. Well, it's great. Yeah. Almost 28 years after the first flight of an A330 uh, in November 1992, the European aircraft manufacturer announced on the 12th of October 2020 on social media that it had handed over the 1500th copy of the family. Uh, November 407 Delta X-ray. Uh, MSN number 1957. Uh, MSN stands for somebody? Oof. Like Manufacturer's yourself. serial number. Oh. Very good. I'm glad I'm, I'm in a bunch of geeks. Um, <laughs> the American company making it the most popular jumbo jet. Oh, please. <laughs> Redful name. Uh, the most popular, fantastically sleek airliner by a number of operators. So uh, they obviously, uh, more operators have that aircraft than uh, uh, the Boeing equivalents, I'm guessing. Uh, the different versions uh, are now in service with 121 airlines and operators. That's actually quite impressive. Uh, since the first delivery at the end of 1993 to Air Inter, it entered service in January 1994. Airbus has delivered, on average, one A330 a week. Airbus has produced the 330-300, flown that, the 330-200, flown that, the old Berlin bombers, the ACJ-330, well, I'd quite like to fly that because it's probably a well-paid job. Um, that's uh, the corporate version. Uh, the A330F, no, I've never wanted to be a trash hauler. Uh, that's the freight. <laughs> the MRTT, that's flying an A330 wearing an Air Force uh, flying suit uh, when you could be in uh, a nice white shirt with uh, 14 pretty ladies down the back. Um <laughs> And the Beluga XL variants of the twin jet. Well, we know the Beluga, it looks much nicer than that uh, Dreamliner. <laughs> Dream, Dream, something, what do they call it? Is that what they call it? The, I don't know. Uh, Lifter. Dream, Dream Lifter. Dream Lifter, I Dream think Carlos is saying. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Dreamliner is something else, even worse. Um, <laughs> okay, so. The end of September, Airbus had recorded uh, 1,818 orders for this family, uh, excluding the uh, multi-role tanker transport uh, and the Beluga, of which 1,501 have now been delivered. Uh, 1,432 are currently in service. So there you go. Oh. So what was the uh, bad thing about the 330-200 and Nick? Oh, they, the Berlin bombers, we got them... Uh, 
from an airline that uh, Air Berlin that had gone bust, and they were very old. They were like Air uh, 2000. They were built in, and um, uh, not up to the same technical standard uh, on the flight deck as our existing ones. So uh, when they first arrived, they took an awful lot of um, uh, modification to bring them up to snuff. You mean that the, the operating system was Windows 98? <laughs> it, was, it was something worse than that. <laughs> oh, Windows CE? I, I think it was, uh, it was MS-DOS, probably. <laughs> Uh, yeah, they, so it, it took us a while, and they weren't terribly serviceable when they first pitched up. Uh, mm. So, um, you know, it's often the way. We had a dreadful airplane like that. We got rid of it to thin air. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. oh, dear. So, Nev, you've got the last story, and um, we're moving to food for this one, just for a change. Ah, yes. Uh, on the dailymail.co.uk, it says that uh, Singapore Airlines is turning two jets parked at Changi Airport into pop-up restaurants as a way to recoup losses during the coronavirus pandemic. Reservations for seat aboard, seats aboard the double-decker Airbus A380 Super Jumbo sold out in a half an hour on Monday. Following COVID-19 guidelines, only half of the plane seats are available during the special event, which is being held on October the 24th and 25th. Customers can also opt to have their meal delivered to their home, where it will come with a welcome video, instructions on preparing and plating the food, and a specially curated playlist to recreate the Singapore Airlines onboard experience. Prices for the restaurant A380 at Changi experience range from £365, $475, to dine in one of the jets, private suites, down to $40 for a meal in economy class. Guests will be able to choose from the special menus designed for each cabin uh, class, the airline said. Options include our signature international cuisine as well as the best dishes from our special uh, Peranican menu uh, that has been designed by acclaimed Singaporean chief Shermay Lee. A number of uh, pre-launch tours of the A380 are also being made available. Diners will also receive limited edition souvenirs and discounts at the Singapore International Airlines gift shop as well as a special present if they don traditional heritage wear. <laughs> well, I'd like to see that. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? How about that? Food does oh. look delicious, I have to be honest. I mean, I didn't realise F airline food could look so delicious. I've got well, it does when you, when you sit in the front seats, Matt, where, where Nev sits. Right, OK. Oh, well, yes. Sorry, of course. <laughs> with, with the, with the clothes, unbelievable that you're paying 365 quid and you're not going anywhere. <laughs> yes. True, true, true that. Didn't, didn't our producer, uh, John, say to us yesterday, guys, that... It must cost uh, a fair few pounds to power up an A380 to enable everyone to go on board and just sit there and... Well, no, it might, they must be plugging in. I don't think they'll be firing up. It'll be, you know, they'll be using ground power units or something, won't they? I don't know. Uh, unless you put ex really good quality external air in, it's going to get pretty hot and sticky. you probably need the APU on. Oh, wow. True. Yes, in fact, you remember the A380 that was at Farnborough? Uh, we uh, went on there. There was an awful lot of ground power and, and stuff, and uh, very often it kept tripping out because there just wasn't enough of it uh, and, and enough air to oh. uh, 
make the whole thing work properly on the ground. Uh, so, yeah. Hmm. Actually, I fancy KFC A380. Anyone up for that? Okay. Yeah. I, I, I don't know what to say to that. Uh, <laughs> so we're going to finish the commercial news segment for this week. That was good. Well done, guys. And uh, we've got, uh, coming up next, we've got some listener feedback. So if you remember the last few weeks, we've been running, uh, or we ran a competition a while back uh, from the, well, it was all to do with the plane reclaimers. And a big thanks to Andrew Keegan, who we had on the show uh, back on episode 324 as a guest. And uh, we had the draw, which uh, was won by Andrew van der Sarg, who won that £150 voucher uh, to spend on the plane reclaimer shops. Make sure you take a look at their website, because there's been some new stuff going on today, and I'm feeling a credit card binge coming on. Anyway, so we asked you to send little pieces of feedback in from Aviation in Your Life, and we had loads of responses, and uh, we've been playing those out. And this week, uh, the entry comes from Alan Loveday. Aviation in My Life by Alan Loveday. My introduction to aircraft was a very young boy in short trousers. During the war, my father was in the fleet air arm, based on what were in those days flat tops, or carriers, and flew in string bags, swordfish, albacore, and barracudas. So guess what models hung from my bedroom ceiling and the stories I heard? We moved to the Manchester area, where I was seven, and I went to school in Stockport, it took me a while to find out what the howl was we could hear from our rugby pitch, and at a later date, the Woodford Air Day, I found out all about the Vulcan and how the distinctive howl together with the Buccaneer Blue Note wow. The next models on my scene were a Vulcan, followed by a Buccaneer, Sea Vixen and Hunter with Royal Air Force English Electric Lightning poster in full afterburner scramble. In my opinion, some of the most beautiful of aircraft ever built. Living near to Ringway, Manchester, I and a few friends became plane model collectors and aircraft spotters, and we spent our Saturdays and school holidays running up and down the Ringway piers, trying to be the first to spot and record such aircraft as the SAS Caravelle, Pan Am and TWA 707s, the BEA Trident versions and the multitude of Viscounts, Vanguards and Dakotas, etc. And to get the smell of aviation fuel as they flashed up engines, Oh, and the bacon butties. I also had a chance to help out with the gliders at Great Hucklow in Derbyshire, and as a result was taken up for several flights as rewards for days spent helping. I was even allowed to take the stick on a few times, which was amazing. Next, I was lucky enough to see the Concorde's maiden flight from Filton, and several follow-up flights when visiting family in Somerset. Life passed, and many air displays later, I was working in Germany and ended up working as a civilian contractor with the US Air Force, so got to work and spend time at bases such as Ramstein, Spanglem, Greisheim and Rhein-Main, so I was constantly alongside the grey stuff such as the A-10s, F-4 Phantoms, UH-1s, F-15s and heavies such as the Starlifter. I also got several right seat flights in various GA aircraft, recreational aircraft at weekends, and finally spent short visits to Lake and Heath in the very early 80s. Once I moved back to the UK, I took the opportunity to start my PPL at Red Hill Aerodrome in Surrey, but sadly, due to a medical condition that developed at the time, I was not able to go solo, but did do my all my ground school and flight training at the way up to solo. Some time later, and having fully recovered, 
I reinvestigated, re-established my solo training, but by that time, children and the resultant family finances took priority, so a yacht was deemed to be less risky by my wife, and as a result, became my hole to pour money into. Throughout my working life, I have flown all around Europe and the Far East prior to 9-11. I got to know a lot of the crews on my regular flights, and I was doing my PPL at the time. I was regularly offered a jump seat, and I was lucky enough to have multiple jump seat trips in the Dash 8, DC-9, BAC-111, and the 747, and also the A330, and even a departure from Kathmandu in a thunderstorm that was developing around the rim. Now that's an experience under the jump seat. One very kind captain, who will remain nameless in the early 90s, actually banked his DC-9 over London to show me the London city layout from the cockpit side, and noted that we may have spilled a few G&Ts down the back. <laughs> Latter years have been filled with the enjoying the now-ended air shows at the Royal Naval Air Service Caldros, where since the late 1980s we have had some fantastic aircraft, both static and flying. Living line of sight to the base, many are able to have enjoyed from my garden, and we have actually had the daily traffic of hawks, merlins, the odd wildcat, and previously the seeking and seeking baggers over the house with visiting Royal Air Force infantry. Latterly, the occasional F-35s, noisy buggers we call them, and the last visit of the Vulcan, XH-558, and the final Coldrose Air Day saw the Sea Fury belly land and grown men, me included, standing and weeping. XH558 made her final turn and climbed away with that magnificent bow. Carlos, Matt, Nev, Armando, I hope this is not too late. But if so, hope it's still of interest anyway. Best regards, Alan Loveday. If you want to take your knowledge to the next level, sign up for a subscription at the A320 Lounge. Our online video courses combine whiteboard-style lessons with full failure demonstrations shot in 4K in state-of-the-art simulators using a professional production team. Go into your next simulator session with confidence, having seen failures run in real time and with the background knowledge to answer any questions from your instructor. To get more information and to sign up, visit a320lounge.com. There you go. Yeah, thank, thank you, Alan. You, Alan. Yeah. yeah, that was that was great, Alan. Well done for that. It's always nice to hear, you know, some kind of nostalgia from uh, from back in the day. Some of, I mean, some of those aircraft even I flew on, and you know. Well, but, that's the uh, that's the best thing about this this um, uh, like the, the the stories, isn't it? Because it is mm. essentially you know aviation in people's lives. So you are hearing some stories from you know by, the bygone eras and stuff. It's 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 wonderful to hear. Yeah, yeah, it's nice to hear that uh, that that bit from you, Alan. So thank you very much for sending that in. Very much appreciated. So we're going to move on uh, with the show, and uh, Armando has joined us, everyone. So uh, whoop, round of applause. So, uh, hey, everybody. <laughs> welcome, Armando. I, I, I hate to say he, this, but uh, he's, your, he's we your weather looks hideous. I can say he chose another crap backdrop, I see. Yeah, <laughs> yeah this, is, this is a pretty interesting Zoom backdrop that I found online. Uh, it's the only one that's got moving cars and right. moving clouds. Pretty interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Now, actually, it's kind of a preemptive apology because uh, there is a train track right there, and there uh, 
there's real motorcycles and real dogs. So if we get any real uh, random dogs coming up and right. saying hello, they're uh, not they're not part of the background. And, and random people wandering past, thinking, "What on earth is he doing?" But uh... yeah, they, they're thinking that guy needs to disconnect when he goes to the beach. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> anyway, should we get on to it? Uh, we'll let Armando introduce. Armando, over to you. Yeah, guys, so I uh, made it just in time. I saw Jonathan Warner's in the chat room. That's the only reason we do this. And no, I'm just kidding. Uh, if you guys are ready, let's knock out some military stories. nice to start the military off with an aircraft that I've seen in action. It's very good. <laughs> so this one is on flightglobal.com and the Philippines have taken formal delivery of six Super Tucanos. So the Philippine Air Force has taken delivery of six Embraer A29 Super Tucano close air support aircraft and could be eyeing up an additional six examples. All six aircraft were handed over on the 14th of October at Clark Air Base, says Embraer. The first four of these had arrived in the Philippines in September. And the Philippine Air Force takes pride in welcoming, welcoming the sixth or six A29B Super Tucanos from Embraer Defense and Security into the blue fold of our skies as part of our fleet, says the Air Force Chief Lieutenant General Alan Paredes. Uh, the addition of these close air support aircraft is a great leap in our air power capability as we saw together in our flight to more, more capable and credible air force for the nation and its people. According to Embraer, the turboprops will be used for a range of missions including close air support, light attack surveillance, air-to-air -air interception and training. The aircraft will serve with the 15th Strike Wing. According to the local Philippine Daily Inquirer, the Defence Secretary Delphin Aranza who gave a speech at the handover ceremony for the type noted the possibility of an additional six examples. Having uh, six Super Tucanos is good, but maybe another six would be even better, he quotes him saying. Uh, Manila ordered the six aircraft in November 2017. They had been due to arrive in June, but the coronavirus pandemic delayed this uh, particular thing happening. So the Super Tucanos will join the 15th Strike Wing in support of the Vietnam War era Rockwell OV-10 Broncos, uh, another one I've seen up close. Uh, Serum Fleet data indicates that Manila operates seven OV-10 Broncos. So Matt flashed a few pictures up on the screen there of those. And uh, yeah, Nick, I'm right in thinking we've, uh, is it the Royal Air Force who used the Tucano as a trainer? Yeah, yeah, I don't know if it still does. I don't really kept uh, an eye on that, but yep. Well, I, I'm not quite sure. I have a feeling they were built under license in Belfast by the old ship manufacturers. So they were all riveted together with like big cast iron rivets. But uh, yeah, I think we had them for a while. Hmm. We might even have, have them now. I don't really know. And I might have been mistaking it for something else, but it was after my time, I'm afraid. <laughs> so Armando, no, this, I do. Uh, Oh, carry on. Well, I was just going to say, yeah, the, the reason this is uh, kind of a cool story is the soup, the Tucano has been around for quite a few years now. And it's just it continues to prove itself as one of those airplanes. Now there's really only three left. There's the Pilatus trainer, the Super Tucano and the T6 turbo uh, turbine. And uh, th these other air forces, other countries are figuring out just exactly how much they can do with them. And 
do you need a big expensive fighter, you know, an F-16 or an F-22 or an F-35? Probably not. Most countries can do just fine with a, a multi-role airplane like the Tucano or the T-6 where it's just got a, a solid engine, solid airframe. It's proven itself worldwide. Um, and, and to replace the OV-10 with the, with the Tucano is, is probably right on par. You know, not a lot of training um, required for the pilots. I was right, by the way. Uh, the RAF had the Tucanos back in 86, and they were built uh, under license by Short Brothers in Bel the Belfast, like I say, a shipbuilder. So uh, they were um, assembled there anyway. And uh, first flew December 86. Uh, I don't know if they still got them. Um, oh yeah, it was withdrawn from service last year from the RAF. So mm. as usual, um, you know, the... Uh, uh, the American military are a bit behind the drag curve. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just go on and let you think that. <laughs> That's how we sneak up on you. I, I, you don't need to sneak up on us, mate. We're in no trouble at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of that, the next story, the Air Force's new secret fighter uh, could pack some pretty highly classified technology. I think we did a story on this last month, but in September, the U.S. Air Force shocked the world when it announced that it had secretly designed, built, and tested a new fighter jet, all in an astoundingly short span of just one year. So the secret new fighter jet, uh, even if it is a new fighter, uh, it's called the Next Generation Air Dominance Program, or we love our acronyms, the NGAD, N-G-A-D, we're just go NGAD. Uh, it is an Air Force project designed to supplement and eventually replace the F-22 uh, which is just so outdated already. Uh, the Air Force has identified five major new technologies it will, uh, that it believes will be necessary for the program. Uh, there is a new report from the Congressional Research, Research Service on this N, NGAD, NGAD, that quick, gives a quick rundown of the program. This secret new fighter jet, which is uh, the Air Force Acquisition Secretary, Will Roper, officially announced on September 15th it will likely include crewed and uncrewed aircraft, electronic warfare, cyber warfare, new weapons, and other systems. Um, so one of these things that they were looking at with this new airplane is survivability. This new uh, fighter jet has to be, avoid being detected on a modern aerial battlefield, speaking of sneaking up. Um, so the obvious suggestion is that this new airplane has an anti-radar stealth technology, uh, possibly lowering or another technology is possibly lowering its uh, infrared signature to avoid those missiles um, and uh, many of today's fighters use nose or pod mounted infrared sensors to detect enemy aircraft uh, an aircraft that uh, is warmer than the surrounding air is how missiles track it that's the reader's digest version so if they can eliminate that it increase, in, increases the survivability of the airplane uh, the lethality of this airplane is purported to be uh, more than the current fifth generation fighters, uh, particularly with some st uh, long range standoff weapons, which is great because you can uh, take a shot at somebody. And you guys had this back in the sixties, right, Nick? Um, where you can take a shot at somebody and uh, they never even know what hit them. <laughs> well, that would be a great idea. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's, uh, we uh, certainly had some technology. Uh, we're not for sure about the sixties. 
Yeah, actually, we're going to talk to you about some of that at the end of the military segment. But oh. the uh, kind of the last thing that, that they uh, reported in this congressional report is persistence. So it has to have the ability to hang around a, bat a battlefield for longer than the current fighter jets. Um, so it has to fly longer, farther than uh, currents. And uh, this would be especially useful if you're operating in the Asia-Pacific theater, which I don't think a lot of people realize how vast that, uh, that chunk of real estate is. But even in Eastern Europe, the Baltics, Eastern Russia, Africa, uh, those, uh, those current fighters that are out there require a lot of refueling. So I'm sure they're going to be, uh, or there's insinuation that this aircraft will, will have a little bit more persistence than the current fifth gen fighters. But uh, not a lot of information still on this new airplane as we find it. We will report it live here on PTUK. And if anyone would like to know what this new sixth-generation fighter will look like, according to the picture on this website, Popular Mechanics, it looks like an F-22 and someone's got a rolling pin just behind the flight deck and rolled across the entire length of the aircraft. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's an interesting it, description. Problem, isn't it, Armando, the fact that uh, to be stealthy, you've got to carry everything internally. So in my day, you just hung more and more tanks or more and more weapon stations on the aircraft uh, you know, until you just ran out of wing space. <laughs> now that you've really got to have internal bomb bays, internal fuel tanks, you, you can't mess about with uh, hanging things on the outside or it just turned the radar signature just wrecked. That's exactly it, Nick. So, Nev, you've got uh, the next story on some new engines. Yes, on flightglobal.com, and it says that uh, GE Aviation is nearing a maiden sortie of its Catalyst turboprop engine, delays to which have had a knock-on impact on Cessna's in-development Denali. Uh, a first flight of the new engine was due earlier this year aboard Beechcraft King Air 350 twin turboprop, but the event slipped. Uh, GE now say that the milestone will soon follow and delivery of the first engine to power the Denali is planned for later this year. It adds that Sir GE's Catalyst programme continues to move forward with engineering and certification testing. To date, the uh, Catalyst has more than 1,800 hours of combined operation and 11 engines assembled. The engine specialist had previously promised that 10, 10 test engines will be flying this year. Whilst the Catalyst is due to make its operational debut aboard the single-engine Denali, the manufacturer is clearly also pushing the uh, 850 to 1,650 shaft horsepower power plant for military applications. An article on the website of GE subsidiary Avio Aero uh, identifies potential for the Catalyst to be used on trainer aircraft and unmanned air vehicles, noting that its 100% European pedigree means that the engine is not subject to international traffic, traffic in arms regulations, export restrictions. It's precisely because of its possible military applications that significant European collaborations have emerged, uh, including those with MT Propeller and Akituri. Uh, sorry, Asituri, uh, the article says. Spanish firm Asituri was added to the programme in June and under the agreement 
is exploring the potential manufacture of certain of the catalyst's components. Paolo Salvetti, who's the sales director for military applications of the catalyst engine at Avio Aero, writes on social media site LinkedIn. Should the uh, agreement with Asituri move forward, worth a potential 30 million euros, uh, says Salvetti, it would add another country to those already involved in the project, which include companies in the Czech Republic, France, Germany, Italy and Poland. Just goes to show you again, with these large projects, it's not just uh, one country that's involved in the development and, and manufacture of them. Yeah, and the reason I included this story in the military segment, because it's uh, the Cessna Denali is a uh, direct competitor to the Pilatus PC-12, but as we saw in the last couple of weeks, the Irish Air Corps just got those five uh, PC-12s. It's an incredibly capable air aircraft. Um, the Royal Flying Doctors use it, so... You can, you can see the, the military applications for medical evacuations as well as uh, a long-endurance uh, IS or intelligence and surveillance mission as the Irish Air Corps is using them in, um, as well as just so, so many things. But that whole market is largely dominated by the Pratt & Whitney PT-6 engine. Every airplane we just mentioned in the previous stories, uh, the Super Tucano, the T-6, uh, the Pilatus, they all use the the Pratt & Whitney PT-6. So having a new competitor uh, from the GE Catalyst engine is, uh, you know, it's always good to have competition, but we may see some changes in future aircraft development with, with this new engine. Mm -hmm. And I just lost everybody. <laughs> no, we're still here. <laughs> we're, no panic, we're, we're still here. We're digesting <laughs> the news. <laughs> as it all, really. yeah. <laughs> we hate that. Uh, what happened? So next story, uh, Nick <laughs> is... Uh, he Nick just G-locked for a second. He just g yeah. I think he might have rejected. Um, <laughs> Nick, this next story is, uh, is relevant to you because I think this, is, this may be an aircraft that you used to fly. Uh, well, albeit this is the uh, F-18F Foxtrot, uh, I flew the F-18A, so... Uh, this is a considerably more advanced aeroplane, I suspect. Uh, it comes from the aviationist.com, uh, and uh, it's footage uh, from an unusual view. So let me read the blurb. There are many clips showing carrier landings from inside the cockpit, but you won't find many videos like the one in this post, filmed in the cockpit of a Hornet in the groove, which he says is the final part of the approach flown with level wings. Well... Yeah, it's kind of straight in part of the approach. Um, the footage below focuses on the hands of the pilot as he controls the throttle and stick until the successful arrested landing aboard the carrier. The video was taken during a foul weather recovery aboard USS Enterprise, says Austin Holbert, the pilot, uh, with the VFA 211 in the comment to the video. Uh, there was a pretty big thunderstorm that was dumping down so much rain we couldn't see uh, the ball. Uh, that's the optical guidance system that a uh, carrier uses. Um, so it's gyro-stabilized, uh, so as the carrier pitches, you still have a nice constant angle, or it indicates a constant angle of approach, uh, and is nicknamed the meatball. And it's the visual and landing aid we use to land aboard the ship. So the LSO, the landing signals officer, had to talk all the aircraft down. Uh, the control inputs are bigger than normal due to the gusts and turbulent winds. Well, 
my, I, I've always been a pretty agricultural pilot, so my control inputs were generally <laughs> like that all the time. <laughs> Indeed, you can see the amount of inputs on the stick uh, and throttle that are required to keep the desired airspeed, rate of descent, and attitude in bad weather. More importantly, the angle of attack. Uh, that's what you're really aiming for, but it relates to your speed. Um, the left MFD, the multifunction display, shows the attitude indicator. Uh, it's on the HUD. You could call it down onto one of the TV tabs uh, if you wish to as a sort of a backup, but of course you can't see through that. Um, and gives a clear indication of the rotation of the jet around the roll and pitch axis of uh, the VFA 211's Rhino, uh, as the FATF is dubbed, in US naval aviation lingo as it approaches the flight deck. Impressive. Now, the trick is um, you can see when the aircraft uh, hits the deck because there's a big jolt. And I want you all to watch when you look at the video uh, to see what the pilot does with the throttle. So if you landed a conventional airplane on a runway, you'd pull the throttle closed. On a carrier, of course, in case you don't engage that wire and you need to bolt, you need to push the throttle forward. So right towards the end, you'll see he does exactly that until he's absolutely certain uh, that he's uh, engaged the wire and it's uh, not going to go wrong. And uh, then, oh, there's something also loose that flies forward. <laughs> I, do, I do wonder what he, there he goes. Bang, he's on the deck. And notice he's got the throttle full and then he pulls it all the way aft once he's realized he's safely come to a halt. And that's, so if he skips the wire, that allows him to bolt safely off the deck. So, Nick, I have a couple questions on this video. Yeah. The, so I assume, so I've never flown a fighter jet, the, when you're at speed that you would never move the stick that much, is it that different when you're at low speed with the flaps out that it requires that much control input to, to get it to where you want it? Yeah, yeah exactly right. The amount of stick movement proportional uh, to the control uh, movement it's not like an Airbus where you're demanding a rate. It's uh, actually just, you know, if you move the stick around, the, all the control surfaces will move the equivalent amount. And at low speed, you need fairly large deflections to correct a problem uh, because the controls are obviously less effective at lower speeds. What about those engines? So he was working the, the uh, power control lever pretty, pretty uh, aggressively. Is that, is the engine responding that quick yeah it, it is very quick uh it's a delightful airplane for example to fly in close formation because there's almost no lag in the engine at all it really was superb uh, whereas i came from the phantom where there was you know there was huge amounts of lag and trying to correct your position if you started to drop back you move throttle forward nothing would happen for a little while so you move it further forward and then you finally get to the third position and then all the thrust would come at once and you go leaping forward when you know, really didn't want to so you had to use a lot of anticipation the fa team was lovely the engines were were really responsive uh, and all he's trying to do is, is just be really um, accurate about keeping his alpha and uh, making um, adjustments all the time just to because uh, it's obviously a bit gusty uh, and uh, he's trying to keep that uh, angle of attack just right 
did you ever have any flights where you had to make those kinds of or keep that kind of accuracy? Was it every flight or is there any one moment that you can recall that it was extra gusty and, and you had to fly it like that, almost like you're coming into a carrier? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm in particular, I remember coming into um, Malaysia, uh, uh, RMAS Butterworth. Uh, we'd been out on a strike mission and coming home and there was a thunderstorm sitting on top of the airfield. And as we were coming down on the approach, um, there were literally bolts of lightning coming out of this bottom of this thunderstorm either side of us. Uh, I had already been hit by lightning, I don't know, about half an hour previously, uh, and um, it had knocked some of my systems off. So I was quite keen to get the damn thing on the ground. Uh, and when I came down towards decision height, the rain was just like a uh, pickaxe handles coming out of the sky couldn't see a thing in front of me so I went around and I was pretty short of gas at that point so uh, luckily there's a, a civil airport uh, on the island of Penang an international uh, airport and uh, I just asked for vector straight there and I climbed out through this thunderstorm and I burst out of the side of it at about 5,000 feet it was just like going from hell into clear blue sky. I went, oh, wow, that's nice. <laughs> and landed it at, uh, at Penang and uh, climbed out. And from the earlier uh, lightning strike, which you come in through the nose and knock the radar off, I looked at the back end of the airplane and the two uh, big tailorons that do all the uh, pitching of the aircraft, where the lightning had exited, there were as big as my hand. All the carbon fiber had gone boof into uh, just uh, it looked like a hairbrush or you know like hair. It, it had it lost all its, uh, its cohesiveness and it had just uh, it was just strands of uh, carbon fiber now in a bit in two big patches on those tailrods. Jeez, goodness. Yeah, it was a good day. They see the injury, and also came along, took a look at it, and said, oh, you can take it back to Butterworth. That'd be fine, and then we'll glue it. <laughs> it'll buff out. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Man, I could, sit, I could sit here and talk to Nick about flying stories all day long, but I suppose we should probably move on, huh? <laughs> oh, hello. Oh, hello. What else will get bored? <laughs> so I won't get bored. Got a train in six Seven years. of us that won't get bored. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, that, that train's calling you, mate. That sounds great. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, okay, Carlos, uh, what's next? So next on the show, and uh, we have got a very, very special segment. Those of you listening will know this is episode 340, and we have Nick on the show. And Nick has prepared a very special little piece for us uh, on the show this Live, week. So, I should say. Yeah, and uh, Nick, we're going to hand things over to you. Well, yeah, you'll just hear my voice because there's a few pictures coming up that uh, Matt will kindly uh, put up in turn. But this really is an honour of your 340th show, and it's all about the Airbus A340. Um, the Airbus A340-300, uh, a four-engine, long-haul, wide-body airliner, entered service with its first airlines, uh, Lufthansa and uh, Air France, in March '93 the same month that I left the Royal Air Force. 
Uh, it was first conceived along with a twin-engine version in the 1970s, uh, and they were developed as a stretched A300 and A310, utilizing uh, the best 10-ton thrust engines that were available at the time. Uh, originally conceived, uh, because I mean, we're talking the 70s now, as replacements for the 707 and the DC-8, uh, still in service, uh, it was planned to carry about 200 passengers, uh, 6,000 miles. Uh, the two types were to use many common uh, components, mainly the fuselage and wings, but also the fly-by-wire technology and cockpit layout of an A320. They were targeted uh, at the growing demand for high-capacity, medium-range transcontinental trunk routes and offer the same range and payload as a DC-10 and the L-1011 TriStar, but with 25 to 38% less fuel consumption. North American operators were clearly in favor of a twin jet, because uh, they obviously do most of their flying uh, over the mainland, um, where whilst Asians uh, wanted a quad, in Europe, the opinion was pretty much split. However, the majority of potential customers were in favor of a four-jet, despite the fact it was more costly to operate than a twin. They liked that it could be ferried around with one engine out and could fly anywhere since ETOPS, extended twin operations, wasn't a thing back then. As the A340's design proceeded, uh, a radical new V2500 superfan engine option was offered by a conglomeration of uh, about six or seven uh, engine manufacturers came together as the International Aero Engines Company, which employed a geared variable pitch fan, giving a bypass ratio of a very impressive 20 to 1. It would uh, use only 80% of the fuel consumed by the basic V2500 core engine. But unfortunately, technical delays beset the project, and uh, the only alternative to fit on the aircraft was the CFM-56. By 1987, the order book stood at 89 for the A340, but then the newly launched MD-11 fell well short of its performance predictions, and other airlines like Singapore ordered many more. In June 93, an A340-200 flew non-stop from the Paris Air Show to Auckland in New Zealand, a flight of over 21 hours and the longest non-stop flight by any airliner of the time. Late 1993, an order of 20 A340-300s originally destined for Northwest became available and Virgin Atlantic acquired some at a very competitively low lease cost. Uh, at that time, Virgin had 10 Boeing 747s, so the arrival of the Airbus fleet caused quite a stir and gave me <laughs> the chance of a job. Over the next few years, the Dash 300 fleet uh, expanded to seven aircraft, and by that time I had already moved to the left seat as a captain. The uh, A340 was taken on by many airlines, uh, typically as a medium-sized long-haul aircraft and mainly as a replacement for the older versions of the 747. 
Some air forces purchased them as transport aircraft, and there were even some private purchases from Saudi princes. In 2002, Virgin Atlantic became the launch customer of the larger A340-600, a version the Airbus built to replace early Boeing 747s. It was capable of carrying 379 passengers, 8,600 miles. The uh, Dash 600 utilized the powerful Trent 500 engines and was 12 meters longer than the 300 and 4 meters longer than the 747-400. Indeed, at over 74 meters or 247 feet, it remained the world's longest airliner until the arrival of the Boeing 747-8. The 340... Uh, weighed in at 380 tons, max takeoff weight, had a wingspan of over 63 meters, that's about 208 feet, had a sweep of 31 degrees, giving a max speed of Mach 0.86 and a common cruise speed of about Mach 0.82. Now, each wing had a winglet nearly three meters or nine foot tall, and the wings very slender, with an aspect ratio of about 9.2, giving a large weight penalty, without, sorry, giving a large weight penalty. The span, uh, similar to that of a Boeing 747-200, with, but with a 35% less area. And this long, thin wing, of course, made it very efficient. The 600 had six large liquid crystal displays in the cockpit with the usual Airbus side stick controls. Problems for the 340 really came at the start of this century when we saw rising fuel prices. In 2008, the price of aviation fuel doubled in only one year. In addition, ETOPS had now become commonplace, and the dominance of the big twins, particularly the 330 and the 777, saw the death of the A340. For example, while Thai Airways constantly filled about 80% of their seats between New York and Bangkok, it was estimated that at 2008 fuel prices, they would need to fill an impossible 120% of their seats just to break even. In other words, they just hadn't got enough seats on the aircraft to make enough money to even cover their costs. The 340 never had a fatal accident. It did, uh, however, suffer landing accidents and lost several airframes on the ground. One particularly bad event followed the loss of control of a brand new, straight out of the factory, a340-600 awaiting delivery that was undergoing engine runs. The engineers failed to prevent the aircraft from accelerating into a concrete blast wall, damaging a wing and an engine, the tail, and breaking off the entire cockpit, severely injuring some of the nine occupants in the process. The remains of the airframe, however, went on to serve as Virgin Atlantic's cabin crew training rig at their facility uh, in the base at uh, Crawley. Now, Virgin Atlantic, my retirement came only months before the end of the A340, as the new ultra-efficient A350 twins began to arrive. It was kind of wonderful to see the A340 into service, with my airline and then served 25 wonderful years flying it before we were both retired. 
I do, however, have some wonderful memories of uh, some great destinations, wonderful crew, and memories of a superb aircraft. Aw. Aw. <laughs> Wasn't that nice? There you go. Well done, A340. Absolutely. What a, be- what a beautiful aircraft. I mean, you've, you've got such fond memories of it, Nick. I mean, it's uh, I, as you say. I didn't. I didn't realise almost the perfect poeticness of the fact that you know you were sort of you know you sort of joined when it joined and and sort of retired when when the three forty retired. It's very neat and tidy of you. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> it was. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I had applied for Monarch and I got a job with them flying the A three hundred. But before I actually arrived. Virgin uh, said, oh, we'll have you, and uh, we're getting some new A340s. And um, considering what's happened to Monarch, I made the, the good decision, uh, it was purely by luck, to uh, um, go, okay, sorry, Monarch, I'm not coming to you, I'll go to Virgin instead. And uh, I, I have to say, the first time I climbed in a 340, the biggest aircraft I'd really flown was probably the Phantom, uh, 20 tonnes. <laughs> Yeah, to climb in something that uh, was, you know, 247 tons for the 300, 380 tons for the 600, um, was quite different, you know, quite a different you know, thing. But uh, as we always thought, um, it's funny, when you're sitting on the flight deck, you really have very little impression of what is behind you. You know, you've got to give the uh, surrounds a lot of space because... Uh, You've got a, a, a big turning circle, you've got big wings, and you don't want to run into something. When you're actually flying it, you only think of yourself as being in the front end, uh, and you assume the rest will just trail on. <laughs> <laughs> Ever hopeful that that might indeed be the case. <laughs> uh, was, well, it the, was the flight deck on the 340 uh, quite spacious, Nick? It was. It was wider than the 320, so you had a lot more elbow room. Um, but basically the layout was uh, identical. In fact, we did, because uh, there weren't any 340 uh, simulators around, we did a lot of our initial simulator training. Well, I was trained in Toulouse at the factory uh, on the 320 simulators uh, because there really wasn't a lot of difference uh, regards mm-hmm. to displays and the way everything worked. Um, the 600 uh, had, again, the similar layout because all the Airbus uh, aircraft have a common commonality between them which allows you to move from one type to the other with minimum extra training um but it had nice uh, big uh, lcd displays um and even more room the the 600 was my favorite it had more thrust uh and um was uh, more like driving a big ocean liner around than flying an airplane well lots of love lots of love uh, for for it in the uh the chat, uh, room. chat room, Nick. Mm. Uh, T- Tanya Wyman, she's saying that that was really lovely, Nick. Thank you for for sharing. And uh, Graham Haley's actually saying he's got very fond memories. Uh, wonderful, Nick. Always loved watching them climb up into the sunset, which is uh, uh, sort of it's, it's very poetic, isn't it? I'm really, 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 well, really loving the that. First ones we got had the lowest powered C, uh, CFM 56s you could get, the C2 variant. And we didn't really climb up into the sunset. We had to wait for the sunset to come down to us. <laughs> Quite. Seriously, the, uh, it, was, it was a significant problem in the early days because, you know, even at a Heathrow where you've got height constraints to hit, and we would 
frequently end up falling short because of the lack of low-level performance. But as Airbus said, the, uh, the aircraft was put together and designed for very economical cruising. Uh, the fact that it took you 45 minutes to get to the top of climb really wasn't relevant. The fact was that you were only consuming six tons an hour, and that is pretty low for a four-engine airplane mm. carrying, uh, you know, uh, several hundred passengers. Indeed. Captain Cruz has a question in the chat room, Nick. Uh, he asks, did you enjoy transatlantic flights better than the Asian routes or no preference at all after all? To be fair, the uh, early Asian routes were a bit difficult because we didn't go through Russia or China in the early days. And there was a lot of um, toing and froing. You had to cross the, uh, um, the Himalayas and, uh, you know, there's often a lot of bad weather around India. And coming home, facing that uh, subtropical jet stream that gave you a constant uh, a headwind for... Uh, many, many thousands of miles. Uh, you know, it used to really struggle to get home in one hop. Uh, in fact, at uh, one point, I do remember that uh, the headwind was predicted to be so strong we couldn't go home on our normal route. What we did was to turn around and fly uh, northeast out of Hong Kong uh, the wrong way, up towards Tokyo, and then we picked up our Tokyo route which took us up through Siberia, and then eventually we looped around onto a westerly heading and came home there, uh, which we could do because there were very uh, low headwinds, and uh, that was a like a 16-hour, 17-hour flight. Um, so the passengers were a bit confused when they looked at their little maps. <laughs> Heathrow to their left, and we're flying up to the right, and there are a lot of questions from the cabin crew saying, the passengers say you're heading the wrong way. <laughs> wow. Now, Nev, we've got a question from Richard Adams, haven't we, in the chat room? Uh, yes, we have. Uh, but, uh, of course, as usual, my screen's not quite in the right area, so let's have a look. Um, Richard asks, are there any worse destinations than Lagos? <laughs> <laughs> Port Harcourt, uh, which is also in Nigeria, um, and a little bit to the east of Lagos um, because that was uh, daylight landings only, captain's landings only. Uh, and uh, when we got to our hotel, which the company had to pay to refurbish an entire corridor so that we could stay there, bring it up to standard, um, we literally had to be locked in for our rest period. We landed at dawn and um, got locked in. Uh, we weren't allowed to eat the hotel food. We had to have special food brought in in hot boxes. Uh, uh, we got up after a few hours. There was nowhere to go. You weren't allowed to go down by the pool because uh, there was risk of you being electrocuted if lightning hit the place. Um, I loved the big sign at the door, which said, no firearms are permitted in the hotel. Um, I've, I'm, Armando, you'd be very, very familiar with that. <laughs> then when we got to yeah. the aircraft, it had just sat there on the pan with uh, security tape stuck all over the doors uh, just to, so we could check that no one had been on board it. And it had just cooked for 12 hours. And uh, we had to climb in and try and fire up the APU. Uh, and uh, it was always a struggle. to. Uh, but we just loved getting out of that place. That was fantastic. 
Nev, another question from Tony, haven't we, in the chat room? Yes, question for Nick. Uh, Tony says, if you were starting your flying career today, which aircraft would you like to fly? Oh, the 350. I, I really had hoped that I would be able to do that last sort of six months and that I might just have enough time to overlap onto the A350. Uh, my great friend, uh, Chris, who you probably, or you might have seen a lot of his videos, um, one of the trainers on the 350 uh, with Virgin, um, he does a lot of videos from the 350 cockpit. And uh, it. What I saw the uh, mock-up or the training mock-up uh, of the 350 cockpit at uh, the base on the day I retired. And I looked at it and went, wow, that's, that's pretty specky. That's, that's very nice indeed. That would be very much a gentleman's aircraft, everything. Even us, us amateurs, uh, Nick, uh, get, get the chance to go on oh, the uh, A350 <laughs> cockpit. Oh, well, look at that. You see, that, that, isn't that fantastic? Doesn't it look beautiful as well? See, what I like here, you see, you see Nev being very, very respectful and, you know, he's got his sort of hands well out of the way, staying well away from all equipment. <laughs> Carlos there is practically trying to fly the damn thing. Look at that. With all these oh, he's fiddling with it, yes. <laughs> Honestly, uh, yeah. the, the BA's uh, 350-1000 that we went on to Dubai for the Dubai Air Show mm. and uh, it was uh, three weeks old, wasn't it, I think, Carlos? The, yeah, it was. It was still had that new... Um, New plane smell. Yeah, right. very spacious inside. Yeah, for the first 10 years of my career, we continually had new aircraft arriving. So I'd, we'd regularly fly airplanes that had less than 100 hours on them. And, uh, yeah, that new airplane smell was always a wonderful thing to have. <laughs> uh, Jonathan's actually flipped it slightly because, as everybody knows, he's a little bit tiny bit obsessed mm. with the old stop it, the old military side of things. And he's asking, actually, was there something in the military uh, world when you, when you were in the forces that you'd have liked to fly that you didn't get the chance to do? Uh, well, had I got a chance to do an exchange on the, the F-22, I think that would have been the pinnacle. Um, mm. I've looked at the F-35 and I don't know, um, no particular reason, but uh, I think the F-22 would have been, if I'd been a chance to fly either of them, that would have been my choice because uh, I just think it's a very specky airplane. It's absolutely fabulous. Armando, have you, uh, have you got any questions for Nick while, uh, while we've got, uh, got him here? Uh, I think it has to do with what you mentioned about the, the parallel with the ocean liner. And when you put that picture up, Nick, the, it, it, it just has that, you look so professional and you're, you're, you just have this appearance of one of those captains where I know if I was boarding or anybody in our community were boarding that aircraft, you know that this guy's in control and uh, you just look so incredibly professional that I think any, any uh, marketing department would be so proud of that picture right there that Matt's got up there. But, yeah. It's a cardboard cutout, Armando. <laughs> well, over your Zoom backdrop, like my Zoom backdrop, right? <laughs> I pinched it from a Kentucky Fried Chicken uh, restaurant. Um, well, three, you I got of you to say so, but you, you, no matter how you look and how confident you appear, that's more like me. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> that was me trying to get a, uh, a free uh, £10 voucher from Screwfix. Uh, they, they said if you could put one of their stickers on your van and take a picture of you, right. uh, we'd give you £10. And, and I stuck one on an A340 and 
Did you get your voucher? That's the ultimate question. But I never got my ten pounds. They received it. I thought, how unfair. They're they're still around, right? Yes, they are. You know, I'm surprised their marketing department hasn't picked up on that. Well, no, quite. uh, um, but no, it's very kind of you to say, but uh, it doesn't matter what you look like on the outside, it's what's going on on the inside. <laughs> true, <laughs> true, true. Which is, of course, where we lose you, and if they only knew, right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> like one of those swans, you know, the old swan. <laughs> arm on top, pedaling like, like billion. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Nev, you've got, uh, you've got another question for uh, Nick, haven't you? Yeah, just a question from me, actually, Nick. I remember, you know, speaking with you over several beers one evening, and, you know, obviously you're, uh, you were rated on the A330, and you took that across the North Atlantic many times. Um, I always felt that you, you felt more at home on the 340, uh, despite, you know, fantastic engine reliability from the, the 330. Why, why was that? Well, of course, you always knew you were going to get to where you were going on a four-engine aeroplane because if you lose an engine, you know, you can, generally speaking, just drop down a few thousand feet and settle in and perhaps pull the speed back a little bit and you'll get to where you're going. Whereas you lose an engine on a two-engine aeroplane and you're off to Iceland or uh, a gander or somewhere in the boondocks and there you're going to be stuck looking after the passengers trying to get a new engine or get the engine fixed so uh it was just having that redundancy of four engines uh, plus the extra systems that four engines give you it, it's just a more comfortable feeling um the likelihood of course of failure of an engine uh you know just as rare really on a two engine airplane as a four engine airplane but if it did happen you just had that feeling of extra security i mean i lost three uh engines while i was with virgin um uh, one on the ground and uh two in the air one was a bird strike the other was a uh, mechanical failure of the engine um but of course never did it really cause a- any concern to us at all in fact on one of them we didn't even bother telling the passengers because they had no way to tell and it wasn't really important um it was an inboard engine and you know it didn't do anything funny it just shut down so uh you know that having that level of redundancy uh made life very comfortable as a Nick, just before we move on, is there one thing, I know you love the A340, is there one thing that you would, you would have changed with that aircraft if, if you were the designer at all on the flight deck? On the flight deck, uh, yeah, I, the, the bunks could have been a bit more comfortable. Uh, I always thought the bunk area, you know, where we took rest <laughs> was a bit diabolical. But no, actually, from an operating point of view, uh, the airplane, the 600 in particular, was uh, was pretty fantastic. It was a real gentleman's airplane. Uh, you didn't have to faff about too much. Uh, um, once we got CBDLC and we could uh, communicate without using HF all the time, we get our weather through a printer. Um, you know, it just did everything you wanted it to do. And Virgin were very good at keeping up with technology, so such that the crews always had the best of equipment on board. Um, no, the the. 340 really was a, a fine gentleman's aeroplane. Not to say that there aren't other equivalent ones out there, but uh, it wasn't too complicated. It had everything you really wanted to make your life simple, and it was very reliable. So from that point of view, it was a wonderful aeroplane to captain. 
Indeed, Mike has got a question actually in the chat room here, saying, um, uh, "When was it? Uh, when was it you would know whether you were going to be flying the three thirty or the three forty? And did you have to prepare yourself particularly differently for the two? It was uh, on our schedule. So uh, when we got our monthly roster out for the next month, uh, uh, the three forty and the three thirty flew to different destinations. So if you were going to a particular destination, you knew what you were going to fly." Uh, having said that, occasionally you pitch up to work and uh, you'd get an unexpected aircraft type uh, or you'd be uh, down at a destination. And uh, you'd arrive at the airport and you go, oh, hang on a minute, <laughs> that airplane's missing two engines. <laughs> so something else would have arrived because of an unserviceability. Uh, and um, although it might seem a little basic, um, what we had on board uh, down the little pocket beside our right leg was a differences card. And if you hadn't flown the previous sector on that aircraft type, you had to pull out this card and you would brief yourself and the other pilot on the differences between the aircraft. And when we had a, the 330, 200, 330, 300, 340, all slightly different weights, all slightly different equipment, uh, often different engines, uh, limitations, that sort of thing. So uh, we would brief ourselves on the common differences so that we just got it fresh in our mind as to uh, what we're going to do on this particular airplane that you, we wouldn't do on a, another one. It was always very handy, and it was just a, you know, one of those um, laminated cards. It was so simple but very clever. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it is unfortunately where we have to start wrapping things up, I'm afraid. Thank you. So, I mean, I can't believe how the stars have magically aligned that, you know, the, the aviation podcast world's most famous A340 captain <laughs> would end up on PTUK's 340th show. I think it's, uh, I think it's uh, amazing, frankly. So uh, thank you so very much yeah, for joining us. really enjoyed it, as usual. <laughs> Carlos, that's where you take over and, you know. Oh, thank you. Normally you pass me. <laughs> Normally you hand me the baton. Oh. Baton. How long have we been doing this? Surely you could do it by osmosis now. <laughs> oh, okay. Fine, fine, fair enough. So don't forget the social medias. Look out for us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Plain Talking UK, we're all on there. Uh, WhatsApp number plus four four seven five seven two two four nine one six six you can get your picture if you send us an aviation themed picture it'll we'll feature it on the green screen behind matt or even on the green screen behind me here uh, actually this week uh, thank you to stuart o'neill for sending me this picture in behind me here thank you stuart uh email the show podcast at plain talking don't forget our website all w's.plaintalkinguk.com if you go over to the website you'll find all the links to our shop where you can buy yourself a PTUK t-shirt uh, you can also grab yourself a PTUK mug which uh, I've we should send Nick on the way. one really shouldn't we it's probably we about should, time yeah. should, we, one, should we get Nick one we'll get yeah, Nick I think a mug we should, yeah. oh thank you guys and also if you shop through Amazon twice this week again Matt very good well done. Uh, uh, through Amazon link, you can uh, grab yourself uh, something through Amazon using our link on the website, and we get a little referral fee, which is lovely. Indeed. Now, obviously, uh, there Nick. is there is a very brief sabbatical taking place, isn't there, Nick? Mm. But uh, uh, there is, of course, an absolutely humongous back catalogue if they haven't uh, uh, caught up with the. Where so uh, obviously, uh, any, I'm sure everybody knows who APG is, but just in case. What, do you want me to tell you who APG is? Yeah, yeah you've, you've heard <laughs> of them, right? I'm not here anymore. Yeah. <laughs> but, 
joking. Captain Jeff's uh, doing his um, his angry puppy conversion from right. the lab. And so he's... Uh, he's that, like, that opens up a whole can of worms. What on earth? Yeah. Why is it called the angry puppy? Well, I think because it's a bit smaller than a mad dog. Okay, fine. <laughs> and it's very grumpy. But, um, yeah, what, what he's what he said is, like, oh, I just need to concentrate for a while. So I Because it does take him, you know, oh. hours and hours to uh, do all the editing and get the show out. So he's just put that to one side for a moment. So APG is having a sabbatical. Uh, however, you can get us at, uh, on uh, Twitter. Uh, our handle is uh, at APG Crew on Facebook. Uh, normal sort of Facebook preamble with uh, Airline Pilot Guy. And... Um, uh, there's a website, yeah, airlinepilotguide.com. So, uh, and uh, of course, obviously, your marvelous, your your famous uh, plane tales are also a huge part of the show, and because they are now in as individual downloads themselves, aren't they? They're available as almost their own little, little podcasts yeah, uh, of its own. Podcasting app and just search for plane tales, yeah. you'll uh, you'll find it, and uh, the, it has its own separate page on uh, our website. So, airlinepilotguide.com slash plane tales. You'll uh, find it and they're all there all 250 or however goodness me goodness me so and captain nick's uh uh personal twitter account is at old plot that i, I presume that was a typo was it <laughs> yeah I, I i was trying to get a version of old pilot that someone else hadn't grabbed right it, and i typed in what i thought old pilot and went oh it's free it's free i'll have that and i didn't realize i'd misspelled pilot right <laughs> so so forever forever forth be known as old plot excellent anyway so, and uh, and his website is uh so it's nickandersonphoto.smugmug.com is that correct uh something very similar to that yep. yeah uh, <laughs> you can get it just nickandersonphoto.co.uk it'll redirect uh through ah, very good but uh, that's if you want pictures of gun dogs, because that's like what I do in my spare time. Ah, oh, some of your photos are absolutely out of this world, Nick. So, uh, yeah, we're definitely very kind. Tra- trawl through there. That's so it. that is where we're going to bring episode 340 to a close. Big thanks to everyone who's joined us in the live YouTube chat room this evening. And also a big thanks to everyone who downloads the show through the audio podcast kind of suppliers uh we're going to say a big thanks to uh nev for joining us tonight thank you nev great to see you as always uh big thanks to armando for joining us as well from that hideous weather uh, that is behind him there <laughs> and uh, a big thanks to matt as well for being our glorious uh, leader in the tech room this evening as always and also a big thanks to our producer john as well for all the pre-production work seriously guys you have no idea how much work that guy puts in behind the scenes it is frightening what he does behind there there, apparently there is planning that goes into this believe it or not Mm -hmm. yeah and also a big thanks of course to our guest for tonight's show captain nick thank you very much again for coming on the show great to see you as always so from me, Carlos here in my home studio, from Matt in the PTUK Master Suite studio, from Nev in the Nev Tech Studios, from Armando in that in lovely the location in the sunshine, <laughs> and from Captain Nick at his home studio. Have a great weekend. Take care, everyone. Stay safe and see you all next week. Goodbye. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. See you later.